You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who've been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. So as you can tell from the title of this episode, this is a really serious and really important conversation that we had with someone who was seen by the Dutch. Um, and it's it's a long conversation as well, which we'll explain a little bit more about that later. But before we get into the interview, we just wanted to take a moment and share some really um, exciting news with all of our listeners. So Stella and I were together for about a week uh, at the retreat. Yeah. And I, I have to say, you know, we've just come back from the retreat and the benefits of meeting in person was so evident even between you and I, Sasha. So we saw the parents, the idea of the retreat was the parents come together and it was very powerful, very moving, some terribly harrowing stories and yet some some real beautiful communications and, and kind of warmth and we felt depth of relationships were, were taking place before our eyes, friendships were were happening and created and it was kind of beautiful. And then for us, you and me, we we got a chance to strategize. We got a chance for what seems like the first time ever. We're two years into the podcast now. We never knew where it would go. We're, we're thrilled. I think I love it. It's it's a very it's a very important part of my week. And I think from having met each other, we kind of thought, right, we can we can do things with this. We can go new directions. We can. We, there's a lot of of ideas floating around as a result of meeting in person. So it's great to take a break and it's great to meet in person because ideas flow from that. And I'm really looking forward to this break. And I also am really looking forward to our our new Gender A Wider Lens when we come back in is it February <laughs> the 3rd, I think we're coming back. Yeah. So, so we are going to be kind of wrapping up this season with this episode. And like you mentioned, we're going to be back on February 3rd. And so during that time, we have a lot of work to do behind the scenes because we plan to bring a lot of updates, a lot of improvements, a lot of changes to the podcast. And we're not going to spill the beans quite yet, but we're really excited (laughs) for some of the ideas that generated while we were spending time together here in Arizona. And, you know, we... I'm I'm recognizing how poor we are at self-promotion. I mean, I don't know if that's the right word, but I guess like talking to people about the resources that we have. So I thought we could spend a moment now, you know, telling listeners, if you are uh, going to miss us tremendously and you want to hear our voices or see our faces while we're gone, we have a lot of places you can do that. I think first thing that comes to mind, if you just want to support our work and Uh, show appreciation that way. You can certainly join our uh, Patreon, which has a couple of different tiers. You'll have access to transcripts from all the shows. And we also do short 15-minute Q&As, 10 to 15 minutes. So if you like little kind of nuggets that way, it's a manageable way to kind of have uh, 
questions answered. So for example, we've done Q and A's about, you know, parents who want to protect the younger sibling from what's happening with their ROGD kid or parents who feel estranged from their children and are trying to figure out how to stay connected with their lives. Um, we've been asked about social contagions and psychogenic illness. So we've answered questions like that in short Q and A format. If you, if you want to hear more, we also have, um, each of us have a parenting site. You have a subscribe star and I'll let you describe that. And I have a Substack, So it's very easy to find us. If you just Google Stella O'Malley Substack, you'll find it and vice versa. Sasha Ayad subscribe star. You'll find it very easily. And um, my, my Substack is like I do webinars and I very much focus on very practical, very specific issues on the idea of there are some people who are really in the trenches in a specific um, uh, in a specific problem. For example, pronouns and names, social transition, or suicide and self harm and the gender dysphoric child, or um, managing anxiety with the gender dysphoric young person. And so I, I'm I'm very focused around um, different issues and how parents might might be helped. And also, you know, I know I did one that was actually had a huge response, which was body dysmorphia and self-loathing, and the gender dysphoric child. And then I do question and answers so that parents can kind of ask questions and, you know, find out specific issues that they want to disclose and, you know, discuss. And I think it's really important that parents have this space to go to. And you have your own. And I was kind of thinking about it. And I bet your vibe is different than mine. And so they might, some parents might say, oh, I think I'll go for a bit of Stella. Or no, 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 she's too rough. I'll go over for the more soothing sounds <laughs> of Sasha. So you've got, you've got a choice which way to go. And I think that's a good thing because I think that will give a nice bit of variety. And you can even test us. You can ask the same questions and see what I <laughs> and I'd imagine we'll come out different and yet slightly slightly similar themes. I'd be very interested actually on a blind test. So work away if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's very interesting. My my subscribe star used to be a Patreon and I shifted over to Subscribe Star a few years ago. And um, I've been running it since about 2017 or 18. And what I do is kind of a couple different things. I have monthly topic videos that I make. So I often think about what are the most common questions parents have asked. And I do videos where uh, I kind of delve into that topic. And what I'm working on right now is a series. And it's an attempt to help parents kind of orient themselves to uh, their parenting style and how to respond uh, to their child based on that. So we talk about whether or not you need to lean in, for example, with more conversation or communication with your child, or do you need to actually back up and give your child some space while working on other things like managing internet or helping to broaden their world. So I kind of give parents a couple of strategies to help them figure out where they lie in these different parenting styles and, and what to do in response. And in addition to that, I run monthly Q&As as well. So parents submit questions ahead of time. And then once a month, we all meet on Zoom. And for about 90 minutes, I just kind of field questions and invite parents to unmute themselves, participate. We kind of talk through the scenario that's going on with their child. And I share my observations and my clinical intuition, you know, as best as I can. So Stella and I both have um, these 
platforms where we do kind of parent support and parent coaching. So if you are a parent listening to this and you would like more direct access to us and more kind of practical strategies, I think that's great because the podcast really focuses on the ideas, the big picture, the philosophy, the psychology. But I think both of our parent coaching websites are focus more on practical application. Um, So feel free to check those out during the break. We'll include those in the show notes. So now I think we can kind of introduce the conversation a bit. So we, you were contacted by this young man who goes by the pseudonym Teresios. Tell us just briefly about him. And then of course, we'll launch into the discussion. It's interesting. I was originally contacted by another detransitioner from Holland. And as soon as I was contacted, I was immediately very engaged because I'd been hearing nothing but the Dutch protocol is the gold standard. The Dutch protocol started the concept of puberty blockers and began the concept really of the trans kid. You know, it really began with this study. And it was a study and we we have, like you could argue, the part one of this interview is our interview with De Vries and Steensma, which we uh, which we had a few months ago, and we very much um, questioned them deeply about the Dutch protocol. And it was seventy children in twenty eleven, and they led out the study. And the idea was we have the ability to choose these children so much so that they will not regret socially medically transitioning as children. And we, the psychologists, have the ability to see into their soul and know what they will like and know what they will be in as adults in the future. And we have the ability to foresee that this is the appropriate road for these people. It feels very authoritarian to me. And um, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't go with me. It doesn't jive with me at all. However, in 2014, there was a follow-up of this 2011 study. 15 of the children were no longer in the study and 55 were in the study. And they continued on. And the, the general idea is that all the all the social transition, the medical transition, the puberty blockers, all of that is rooted in this study from Holland, this small study from a Holland where I might I remind you, one person actually died out of those 70. It's not not great figures, not great stats are coming out of that. And yet it 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 flew like the wind. It, it got lifted and it got raised. And until detransitioners contacted us from Holland, I've always been very, very interested to meet anybody and hadn't met anybody. When I met the first detransitioner, I met them and I spoke with them quite extensively for the last few months. And now I met a second detransitioner and there are other detransitioners from this clinic. And uh, this detransitioner is male. And his story, it's its long and it's unfolding as we as we discuss it. We take our time with it. We decided to take our time with it. We made that decision mm-hmm. so that people could get the full view of him. Yeah, just for context, you know, typically we tell our guests, we're going to record for about 50 minutes or an hour, and then we're going to wrap it up. But before we even got on the call with Teresios, we decided, let's just let this young man tell his story in full in whatever way he feels is best. So as the listener, you'll see it's much longer than most of our podcasts. Uh, For some other podcasts, this is normal, two and three hour conversations. But for us, this is long. But we really encourage you to... Um, listen carefully because he's kind of laying out the the trajectory of his life and like all of the things in his childhood that contributed to this, what you will discover is this kind of sudden decision that like, 
wow, medical transition is going to transform my life. And he describes step-by-step how all of these medical professionals totally failed to catch the red flags, to ask him deep and important questions about his sexuality, about his trauma, about bullying, about divorce, all of these things. So that being said, you know, we encourage you to take a look at the conversation we had with the Dutch researchers, which is episode 66. We'll include it in the show notes. If you've listened to it, great. You can jump right in. But if you haven't, it might be really interesting to listen to them, you know, maybe one after the other. And, you know, I know, Stella, you're really interested in having Michael Biggs on, who's a researcher who's really kind of looked in excruciating detail at the Dutch studies, trying to unpick where does this concept of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones come from? What are, you know, we don't have a lot of follow-up data. So, of course, these kind of case studies are interesting, but that might be like almost a part three, I'm imagining, of these three episodes about the Dutch. And I imagine as time goes on, more Dutch detransitioners will come out. And just, we want to be really clear, Teresios was not one of the young people in the study per se, but he was treated at a Dutch clinic, which follows that protocol. So we don't want to kind of misrepresent it. Okay, so I think that's it. Is there anything else you want listeners to know? No, no. Um, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It's long, it's deep, but it's worthwhile listening to. And I hope you both, you all enjoy the break as much as we intend to. Yes. And we will uh, be back in February with a lot of exciting updates. So enjoy our conversation with Teresios. Hi, Stella. How are you feeling? I'm good. Um, how are you? The 99th episode. Yes. It feels very... It- um important it does it's it's amazing that we have recorded nearly 100 episodes together and i i couldn't be more um thrilled to have our special guest on today we welcome teresios to the show thank you so much for joining us hello thank you for inviting me we uh feel like there are so many valuable things that your story will offer our listeners and we just want to give you a space to to start your story, I guess, from from the beginning. Maybe we can start with your childhood. You could tell us a little bit about what you were like as a kid. And then, of course, leading up to how you ended up in the Dutch clinic. So tell us about you as a child. Yes, of course. Um, so as a child, I was always kind of... Um, not I didn't really fit in with other children uh and I had this I mean this happened for like most of elementary school and I was always a bit more um feminine and uh I was very sensitive <laughs> and um I liked dressing up in like uh dresses and skirts and I wanted to have long hair and I liked doing stuff with makeup and all that and also I like playing with uh, dolls and like typical so you know like stereotypical girl things um but at the same time I also was interested in more boy toys so it wasn't like I only had this feminine side I always had like this kind of double side I suppose but um I I remember telling a lot of people especially like other children that 
I wanted to be a girl or like, yeah, I, I would tell uh, other kids that I wanted to be a girl. Um, and my parents also sometimes, um, but my parents, because this was like late 90s, early 2000s, so in, in like a very rural part of the Netherlands. So, you know, people didn't exactly knew much about transgender or like and also like the the medicalization of of trans children at that time had only just started so or barely started even so so it wasn't really something that was known so what year were you born approximately um yeah i was born in the in like late 90s okay okay so you were one of those kids who just naturally gravitated towards girl toys, girl things. Sometimes you said you wished you'd grow up to be a girl. So this was pretty natural for you. And and all of this is kind of happening throughout your childhood, or did this start at a particular age that you felt more drawn to femininity? No, this was uh, like from as early as I can remember. I remember like in kindergarten, uh, there was... <laughs> There was this um, dress that I really liked. It was like a, I, I, I think it was like a fairy dress or something, and I wanted to wear that, so I, I, I put it on, and I wore it, uh, and then I went to like um, play with, I think it was like cars or with um, like machine, like tractors or something. So it was like I, I had this very like dual side, like both feminine, yeah. both like masculine, I suppose. How did people respond to your kind of blending of different feminine and masculine activities? Um, Well, very mixed. Uh, There were a lot of people that didn't particularly care. Um, And my parents, they also didn't really care. They they just let me do it. They didn't make an issue out of it. Um, They didn't think I was, it was weird or anything, but they did. It did make them think that I was gay, <laughs> so which they 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 were right about that. But um, there were some people, and especially other kids, that thought it was weird. So I was bullied for it, sadly. Um, and sometimes also from like adults, I would get weird reactions um, because some uh, adults like they didn't want me to to play with their kids or be around their kids because they thought I was like weird and I was going to influence them or something. I'm not, not sure, but they, they reacted weird to me as well. Yeah. And I, I heard you say a couple of things that kind of uh, struck a chord with me. Um, one was that you said along the lines of, I was the archetypal trans kid. And the second thing you said, which I thought was very interesting because it resonated with me was, Gender dysphoria doesn't really describe the experience of the actively gender nonconforming kid because when they're so young, I think it's more like they're determined or certain or clear of what they like and what they don't as opposed to dysphoria. It makes me think of the kids who went to the Zucker Clinic who had dysphoria. It makes me think, might they have had other distresses? I certainly had other distresses, but that wasn't the source of my distress that was just where I was going in life I don't know it's just gender dysphoria doesn't seem to really describe the experience I'd like to hear your thoughts on that yeah no definitely um especially when I was this young I I mean I had 
I had um how do you say that like uh things I didn't like I had issues like problems but um I didn't hate being a boy like I knew I was a boy even though I always had this feeling that it made more sense if I was born a girl or I always preferred to be a girl but and I I said that to people also but um I never hated or disliked being a guy. I was just like, yeah, well, I am a guy. So, and I, it didn't upset me or anything. It was just like, that's what it was. So, um, it only got upsetting when people told me that because I was a boy, I wasn't allowed to, to do these things that I wanted to do. That's what upset me. Um, but then as I got older, I, I also kind of started to learn that, uh, people thought that you know me being a boy doing these stereotypically feminine girly things was weird so i i kind of stopped doing it uh because i i didn't want to get bullied basically so that's why i stopped doing it eventually society gave you the dysphoria i i remember i did i don't want to go on about myself but i just want to clarify i i i definitely did not want to be a girl i i think i was a misogynist i i didn't like girls at all but i i know it wasn't wasn't the heart-wrenching pain that the teenagers talk about that that's a whole I suppose that's a more older kids experience and like you uh, it made sense that I should be with the boys just like you thought I should be with the girls this is where I belong or something this is the natural fit or something like that yeah I'm I'm not sure I never really felt like I and I think that's also very important which made me identify as trans eventually, I never felt like I fit in anywhere, not with the boys, not with the girls, uh, which is, you know, especially growing up and especially in puberty, that's very distressing. It, it's very painful. Did that have something to do with just like your your personality or your interests? Like yeah. I'm just thinking about describing that you lived in this very kind of rural part of the country Um do you think it was something more just about who you were as a kid that you didn't really fit in? It just seems like it wasn't just gender. It wasn't really about gender per se. No, it was more with, um, you know, friendships with, with peers, um, uh, other kids my age, because uh, at, at a certain point, I went to the local village school initially, but the bullying there got so bad that my parents eventually sent me to another school um in like the nearest city um and when i went there initially like the first years things went pretty well and there i really things got really better with me um and i didn't really my like discom like not i don't want to say discomfort but my unhappiness it went I'm not. It, it kind of went away because I just I had friends and I was I I don't know if I was popular but I was I had friends to play with so mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't feel so mm-hmm. lonely. I think the and I my parents also sent me to a before they sent me to another school they sent me to a uh, children's psychologist and she basically said that um, there was nothing um, you know wrong with me but I was very like I was a gifted kid, I was like in, intelligent, um, and I f- felt very uh, lonely because I had this. Well, I'm not sure if he said that, but looking back, the reason why I felt lonely was because I had this interest, like this weird interest that that 
other kids didn't have. So I remember I was very interested in geography and in history and other children just weren't. So, um, yeah. yeah. You sound lovely. <laughs> yeah. You sound like a very sweet kid. Um, and so around what age did you get put in a different school and start making some friends? Around how old? Honestly, I don't know. I think it was around seven. Okay. Um, I have to think. It was like fourth fourth grade. So that's, yeah, seven, eight, something like that. Okay. So, so then what happened? So you switch schools. You, you start making a couple of friends. What What's next? Um, so when I was in, in that school, it was fine. I still um had this kind of interest in like feminine things uh and always i remember when we were playing uh like role playing games uh, i always took like feminine roles and and at the new school other kids um didn't bully me for it it was kind of you know it just they just let me i suppose um and I, I also remember we had this um, play thing. It was it was a bit of a. It was not a regular school. It was it was a different kind of philosophy. It was a school that followed this kind of different philosophy. And they had these old um, holidays, uh, which most people don't celebrate, but we celebrated it, and it was it was quite fun to be honest. Um, and there was in because of one of these. Um, uh, holidays i don't maybe you know it it was saint lucia um day it i think they celebrated scandinavia a lot uh and and then uh i think it was in our um case it was like fifth or sixth grade that then uh went around all the classes in like costumes um to like give out pre- not present but like um cake and candy and, and stuff like that so um and then the girls would dress up as angels and the the guys would dress up as gnomes i remember and then they wanted me to have like this gnome suit and i remember telling them i don't want that i want to be an angel <laughs> so and they let me i i i they let me um i could be an angel so um but other than that in like daily life i didn't really i was just a boy i suppose so i didn't really have this thing that i really wanted to be feminine or anything it was more in like role playing um but then as i got older uh, my parents eventually divorced um and still i didn't it was for a long time it was kind of the same like i was just a, a guy i suppose like a boy uh eventually i did did want to grow out my hair longer but other than that it wasn't it was there was nothing unusual about me i suppose could could i ask had was there had anybody said anything about being gay or had that been brought up or was that anywhere in the air like yeah yeah so um it was a bit of a long well a bit of a weird story but um i realized that i was gay very early uh, I think because I also hit puberty very early. Um, I think around the time my parents divorced, I was ten, uh, and that's when I noticed that I like things were starting. Um, um, 
or like 10, 9, something like that. And that's also the same time when I kind of realized that I was attracted to to other boys. And that kind of freaked me out because I, well, initially I was neutral about it because my parents, they were always kind of open-minded about it. So they, I knew that it was a thing and I knew that it existed. Um, so I, I remember, I think I told my mother and she was, she, she was okay. Like she didn't, she, I, she probably saw it coming. <laughs> um, but then later I also told other kids in my school and they, uh, didn't really react very well. So, um, and I didn't got bullied like initially, but, uh, when my parents divorced, uh, I got bullied again and they also kind of bullied me with, with like being gay because I had told them. So other people had like, they told other people. So in, it, everyone know that I had, that I had said that, that I thought I was gay, but obviously as soon as, as they started bullying with me, I, I kind of denied it. I was like, no, that was just a phase or I was just, you know, so I guess, I guess I kind of went back into the closet. <laughs> um and that the time when i got bullied again was around the same time my parents divorced and i'm not sure exactly why i think it was just because my parents divorced so at home i was i it was like messy because my parents divorce was very very problematic very messy uh so i was just an easy target i suppose because also i was always different um so i think that's why they bullied me or are you an only child? No, I have an uh, older sister. Mm, okay. But she, um, maybe that had something to do with it as well. Uh, they, by the time that I started getting bullied again at the new school, my sister had gone to high school. Because so you were alone. Yeah, so whereas before, my sister sometimes would um, kind of, uh, it's like protect me I suppose like when someone picked on me she would like pick on them <laughs> so because she was older so you're kind of like in an exceptionally vulnerable place you have your parents are getting this very complicated divorce you kind of came out of the closet and then popped back in and your sister's gone so you're kind of alone that yeah and you were what around 10 at that time yeah um yeah mm. 10 it sounds difficult so yeah so then then what happened um i mean the bullying i i mean it, it was it was uh bad but it wasn't it didn't last very long it was just for i think one year and then later it kind of stopped again also, again, I'm not sure exactly why. Oh, well, maybe because I, I hit puberty so early and I got taller than everyone. So maybe that's why. <laughs> but um, so and then like last year of elementary school, I hated it, but not not because I was bullied. It was I hated it because I remember thinking that the teachers were treating us so childishly and I was looking forward to going to high school and all that. But not because it was necessarily like a horrible period. So. So part of you was like ready to grow up. Like I want to be treated like a mature adult that I am. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, oh, it it was kind of weird because, and I like all this time I still kind of had this this this, um, 
interest in like being a woman and I really su- suppressed like this feminine side of me ever since I got mm-hmm. beat again for it. Uh, and I remember when I went to high school, I really wanted to be very masculine and like go like I did a lot of sports and I worked like really wanted to like be because I was very tall also. So I really wanted to be like big, I suppose. Um, and I went on, uh, I did martial arts a lot, which I also really liked. I still like. Um, so again, and, and again, I didn't hate those things. You know, you would say that's like stereotypically masculine. I didn't hate it. But at the same time, I also had this feminine interest, but I, I, I suppressed it a lot. Um, and because I, you know, I thought I have to do this in order to, like, I wanted to do everything in order not to get bullied again. Um, and, uh, and when puberty started, initially I was kind of excited about it. Um, because I was like, oh, I'm, well, it, it, multiple reasons. Not necessarily because I thought I was getting an, becoming an adult, but I, I thought it was also going to, um, like my attraction to guys would like or boys like would go over. I thought like, oh, puberty is going to make me straight. Like puberty is going to make me a man, and then I'm going to be attracted to women. Obviously, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I I thought that was going to happen. Um, so I was excited about that, and I wanted that to happen. But also like these physical changes initially. I didn't hate them because because the, the the changes that I got initially were the ones that I was kind of excited about, like getting taller, getting bigger, uh, having a deeper voice. The thing that freaked me out though was body hair. I I hated that. Um. But other than that, not really. But later in puberty, then I got like other stuff that really freaked me out. Um, so that's when, when like the real discomfort started. And also because that's when things went much more downhill with me, like mentally, which is also related to like family issues. (laughs) Um, could I ask, um, I think body hair often really seems to hit teenage boys really quite badly, just like with the girls, um, the periods and breasts seem to really hit them. Some it feels very like body dysmorphia in a way, certainly. Yeah. Um, and you said other stuff was it s- similar to that, like body hair and things like that? Is it? Yeah, well, sexuality really freaked me out. Um, like, <laughs> I don't want to go into like TMI space here, but. Um, you know, just male male and female sexuality are very different. That's not a surprise to anyone, probably. But like men, you know, there's this stereotype that men are much more um, like aggressive in a way that, that like male sexuality is much more about um, like is much more physical and much more aggressive, I suppose. And I definitely noticed that. And also. It's not something you can, or at least I couldn't turn it off. It was like the, the more I tried to not think about it, or like the more I tried to to suppress it, the harder it got because I could not, like you know, <laughs> which is normal for 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 guys and men, I suppose. But it freaked me out. It made me feel like very 
like an animal or like yeah. primal. I, I think this is common. I mean, males who are just experiencing that for the first time, it does feel like this powerful force that takes over their body and they feel out of control. And I think it's very scary. I mean, I think some boys figure out how to embrace it. And maybe those are the boys that are a little bit more crass and they're kind of like out there hitting on people or whatever. But I think the sensitive boys often experience this as a terrifying experience. Yeah, definitely. And and also for me, what played a role was that I was attracted to other guys and to men, which I really didn't want. So I, you know, I kind of, put on this <laughs> so, oh, if I think back on it it's so cringy but um, I really try to become this very you know I try to mimic other men uh, and like how they talked about women and like especially like straight men and straight boys and it was you know this very kind of objectifying way of talking about women and it was really but I, I did that to hide that I was attracted to two guys. I've heard boys and men talk about this kind of drive that happens to them in the in those years. And I heard one guy saying, you know, it's like being strapped to a beast that I frankly didn't want to be strapped to. I think we underestimate that as as females. We have our own issues that we're we're kind of confronted with in adolescence. But this runaway train, this kind of the beast of testosterone um, it does feel like a burden for for some people, and then I think if you're if you're gay, that really complicates the process even more because you're trying to hide oh all of this. Whereas, like a straight boy, probably he and his friends, you know, talk about this stuff, and he feels like, okay, I'm not the only one. But then, oh, wow. you know, with you being attracted to other boys, you're trying to hide it. You're overcompensating. I mean, how confusing! That seems so confusing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and also, um, because I, I just, I mean, I remember, <laughs> I remember I tried to, to like have myself feeling attracted to girls or to women, but I just couldn't. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it freaked me out. So at this point, you have not, based on, I think, what you're saying here, you have not really heard of transition, becoming a transgender, medical interventions. You haven't heard of this stuff at this point. I, I had heard about it. Uh, okay. There was um, a trans uh, person in my high school. Um, and um, I'm not sure if they actually went on medical transition eventually, but, but they... Um, you know, presented as the other gender. Uh, were they kind of female to male or male to female? Uh, female to male. So I knew it was a thing. And also, uh, you know, at the time, especially, uh, there were jokes about it. Like in the media, you would hear about, like, especially male to female trans people, they were, you know, always kind of ridiculed, um, which is, you know, kind of, a bad thing i think but um it was it, it happened so i had seen it on television so i i knew that it was a thing but i didn't you know we would always call them like trend um uh, like 
a slur I'm not I don't think I should say on here but <laughs> that's that's what I okay. thought was like the appropriate term back then because that's what everybody called them but mm. other than that I didn't really knew about it I had not heard about like I had no I had heard about uh, people who were born as guys that then transitioned into women um but i hadn't heard this thing of like oh they were unhappy and then they became happy because they transitioned i hadn't heard that and also at that time because this was when i was i think 12 13 i um i don't want to say i was happy but the unhappiness was not that bad um and it it also wasn't um the unhappiness that I had, I didn't project it on my gender, if that makes sense. And that that I eventually that happened when I was like later when I got older. Um, but like a lot of stuff happened <laughs> in like prelude to that. And I have to think. So eventually, I because um, this was in like first year of high school, and I I kind of tried to be this really masculine person, which is funny because that's completely not what i am but um so and and i i had friends that i hung out with um but then came the second year and things got more complicated also at home because because um you know the divorce was even though the divorce was still already like i think my parents had divorced for a few years um at that time but it was still difficult um and it was still going on and like um because i also have an an older sister so like things involving us especially uh got very complicated um and so at home it became very messy and also this this friend group that i used to have i kind of stopped seeing them because we kind of grew apart like they went to another school they were from elementary school uh, that I knew them from, but they went to another high school, and initially we kind of kept seeing each other, but they had other friends and other interests, so they kind of just um, went away. And then I had this friend group from my high school um, that I hung out with, but um, they kind of left. Uh, like two of them, there were three three guys. Two of them left to uh to like another well one left to another country one to another school and then one kind of also stopped hanging out with me um and like all that happened at the same time and that's when i kind of got crazy i suppose (laughs) i i really got very depressed and i really felt very lonely again and i really felt very i like i was thinking stuff to myself that it was um useless to to try to make contact with other people because sooner or later they would like abandon me anyway or like that i couldn't trust people because sooner or later they would like use um things against me um so so i really started like at this period i really started to isolate and this is also the period when other things with puberty started happening so i got I remember I got acne, which I hated, and I got more body hair, which I also really hated. And um, 
but so yeah i started to isolate a lot and my, most of my existence was online and i had this this friend group that i from like sports from martial arts that i did which i i could get along with them um but i didn't see them a lot outside of the like regular training so other than that i really didn't have many like a lot of people to hang out with um so most of the people i talked to were online and most of them were also uh gay boys about the same time with about the same interests as i had <laughs> so it was nice talking to them but i'm not sure exactly what it was i i just really even though i i was talking i i found people that were also gay and kind of closeted well very closeted um they i, I still just didn't it it's it gave me this feeling that you know i'm i'm not uh there's more people like me but still i just didn't want to be gay like still i i i it didn't give me this feeling like oh i'm not alone or like i'm uh there's nothing wrong with it i still just really didn't want to be gay um so you know as these things progressed um i also kind of developed this this idea that if i was born a girl then things would have been so much easier because also from what i could tell at high school and i'm not sure if this i mean it's probably wrong but <laughs> from what i could tell was that girls were uh, had a, an easier time uh like socializing than boys and also that was what i was gathered like gathered at that time and again like probably it's not true but <laughs> um and also the way that boys socialize with each other teen boys i hated that because it's very competitive and i never wanted to engage in that but i felt like every time i was kind of dragged into it um and i just hated all of that and i didn't want to have anything to do with it um so the people that i hung out with were mostly girls uh after that but I always kind of sensed this this feeling from other from girls that um even though they they like got along with me or they liked me, they kind of kept their distance because they didn't want to give um like um wrong impressions to me like they didn't want to give me the impression that that they were into me or anything uh so I always felt this kind of distance from them and i I, I started thinking like, oh, if I was a girl, this wouldn't happen. And I also could just be attracted to guys and that wouldn't be a problem. And also I would have this because all this time for years at this point, this, this feminine side of me, I had suppressed like very much. And I also started thinking like, oh, if I was a girl, I didn't have to suppress that. So I just gathered um, that it would be so much easier if for me, if I was born a girl. So I started having this this um, desire to be a girl, um, but still I didn't think about transitioning because um, still at this point I hadn't heard the connection between transitioning and like solving problems or solving unhappiness. Basically, and that happened when I was sixteen because uh, I was watching TV and then there was this this talk show where they had um, a trans man 
talking, who was also a teenager at that time. He was a few years younger than I was at the time. I think he was like, uh, I don't know, 13, 14. And I was 16. Um, and he talked about that he was very depressed and he didn't like being a girl. And especially when puberty hit. And then he kind of transitioned to a boy and, and like things are so much better now. And then I started thinking, this sounds very similar to me. So I started Googling it online. Um, and uh, I found all these websites, mostly from America, um, where people would just um, say like uh, how to know that you're trans and you would get this like checklist of like symptoms or whatever. So I, I, I and I looked stories from other trans people up. This was also 2000 and I think 15, 2015. Um, so I, I had all these stories of people that were, they had, they had become so happy and things were so great. And especially trans, because obviously I was looking mostly at trans women. Um, and when I saw that, and also because all of them told about having these feminine feelings ever since they were a kid and having these feminine interests. So when I, I heard those things, I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Like, this must be me, you know? Um, and also because I was so unhappy, I really wanted to uh, do like, that's when I started to really want to transition. Cause I thought like, this is it. If I don't do this and I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. I think what is also important to know, to tell here is that at this point, uh, for like the months before I, I think it was a, a year at this point before I, I found trans, um, found out about trans. I was looking for other stuff to kind of explain what was wrong with me. Cause I was at this time, I was like very convinced that something was wrong with me and, and there was something that I had to fix um, because I was so unhappy. So then, and, and because I felt hated by everyone. So I thought there must be something that was wrong with me. I remember before I, I identified myself as trans. I, I, I never went to a therapist. My mother, she really wanted to get me to talk to a therapist, but I, I didn't want to because, again, I had this idea that I couldn't trust anyone. Um, so I, I self-diagnosed with, I think it was autism. Oh, no, I think the first thing I came across was um, um, bipolar disorder. And then it was autism and then borderline. And then I don't know, like all this, this diagnosis that I just found out online. And then I would kind of fixate on them. And I was like, oh, this is, this is me, you know, like this is what this explains me. And, but then after a few weeks, it would fade away because it didn't really make a lot of sense. And then, you know, and, and that's what I continued to do for a couple of months. And then I found out about trends and, and, and trans like really had an answer. You need to transition, and then it was it was all great. So that was the one that sticked. Um, and then I became very focused on on pursuing transition. So, so because trans as an identity, unlike autism or borderline, because it had a concrete set of steps that you can do, there's something very appealing to you about that because you were in this kind of dark hole, and you're like, well. I don't know what to do. Even if I have autism, there's no, there's no particular thing you do with autism that f fixes everything. Exactly. And then, you know, you came across these stories like I was depressed. Then I transitioned. Now I'm happy. Like this very simple formula almost. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and what was also important was that, and this, you know, looking back, I feel very stupid for not seeing this, but um, before I found out about trends, I hated my body. I, I like, I hated looking at it and I thought it was disgusting, but I could never pinpoint what it was. I just didn't like it. But then I found out about trends, then it was, and then it was the masculine thing. So then it was my brow bone, and then it was my shoulders, and then it was my big feet, and then it was my genitals. And, and whereas before, it was ne- never like it, that particular. It was just, I didn't like oh. it, but no idea why. <laughs> you, you were given an opportunity to blame something. This is, this is really, uh, God, this comes up a lot because I, I often work with parents whose kids have come out as trans and they they will ask their kids questions and the kids will say stuff like, well, I hate how big my hands are and or I hate how small my feet are or whatever. And the parents are like trying to understand where is this coming from? Like this feels so random. Yeah. But I think what you're describing yeah. is like when we have something to focus on, we divert our depression, our sadness, our distress into particular things. It's like the same as a body dysmorphia. If I got really fixated on like the shape of my eyebrow or something, like that could become it's, the It's obsession. a coping mechanism. You can channel it all yeah. on one thing and then it doesn't feel chaotically wrong. It feels clearly wrong. Exactly. And then the next point is, and it's fixable. So it's not only that it's clearly this is the problem. So that calms the kind of chaotic mind. It's like, and it comes with a framework of now I know what's wrong with life. Now I know how it needs to be fixed. Can we now get the get the fix in? Before the promise, exactly. And and now we're kind of fast forwarding to later when I was transitioning already, because that was when I when I, you know, did things about it. I had I went on hormones. I had this. I had facial feminization surgery. So I fixed these things that I hated about myself. But especially after facial feminization surgery, I I realized it didn't fix anything. It just moved it because, you know, I hated my face. So I had this surgery and then I didn't hate my face anymore. But then I fixated on my shoulders and then I fixated on my hips. And and then that was the problem. And then, then I wanted to do something about that. And then I realized, like, what what am I doing? <laughs> I realized that there was never going to be a point where I was going to be happy with myself because it, it didn't fix anything. It just moved the problem to another part. And it could then go into, you know, voice and, oh, it can go everywhere. It can go everywhere. Yeah. So could you tell us your experience yeah. of, of your you know, the clinic, the Dutch clinic, which has always yeah, been how- held? Oh, sorry, am I jumping ahead? Yeah, no, 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 you're right. I, like, how did you end up at the clinic? Because, of course, you're starting to get distressed. You're starting to fantasize about transition or becoming a woman. Yeah, let's let's connect those dots. That's really important. I, I want to remind listeners that the Dutch clinic are always held up as, you know, the the gold standard, the clinic that does it right, the clinic that, that you know, brought us the concept of the trans kid, the clinic that brought us the concept of puberty blockers, all on the basis of effectively a study of 70 children. 
And, you know, there were issues with that and we've gone into that before. But it's always held up as this great, brilliant gold standard. And if only the other clinics were following that, maybe we would have had some luck. And your narrative, and may I say other narratives, I've spoken to other detransitioners from Holland, are telling a very different story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think it's important to go into there. So um, I, when I, you know, had was looking on the internet and I was like, oh shit, I'm trans. And, and this all, I thought this all made so much sense to me. Um, I told my mother very quickly, even though I had struggled for years, my whole puberty with my sexuality. And I was like, I'm taking this to my grave. Like I'm never going to tell this to anyone, even though my mother knew, but, <laughs> um, coming out of trans was not that if was like really not that much of a problem for me because i told my mother within a couple of months i think three four months later i told my mother and the reason why was because of obviously i had looked for like other trans communities like online trans communities and chats and and, and stuff like that um and I would talk to other trans people, and most of them were older. Most of them were trans women that had transitioned to, like older when in their 30s or 40s or 50s. And they told me that I needed to transition very early because um, I was still young and I still could prevent things from puberty. So horm like I needed to get on blockers very soon because then otherwise I was going to regret it for the rest of my life because uh, I would get... Um, like changes done to my body that I could never reverse. Um, which honestly was kind of bullshit because at that time, you know, the things that were unchangeable, like bone structure and, and height, and it hasn't, it, it didn't, like I, because I hit puberty so early, it hadn't changed that much. Like me compared to now, then when I was 16, it, it's not, like that much of a difference to be honest but anyway um so that really messed me up because i really that really um made me like very desperate to to get on these these hormones so that's why i i was so quick on telling people even though my when it came to like being gay um i was struggling with that forever so uh, and also because there was this this um, future, I'm not sure how to call it, like a, a future image of myself where I was like, okay, yeah, this period is going to be difficult, but in the end, it's going to be worth it. So I'm just going to be like a straight woman, basically. Whereas if I came out as gay, then I would be a gay man, which was a thing I didn't want. And um, this future woman in your mind, did you have a picture of somebody kind of fabulous or was it vaguer than that? No, I, I had a, a picture of what I wanted to look like and how I wanted to be, which was completely unrealistic, um, which I really wanted to pursue. But obviously, I was never it was never going to happen because. And did like, they explore that? Sorry, did they explore that in the clinic? Sorry for jumping in on you. Um, well, yeah, but not in not very much in depth. So. So okay, when I when I told my mother that I was trans, she was very 
um, surprised because she she expected me to tell her I was gay, uh, and then I told her I was trans. So she was she she was kind of, you know, uh, didn't know what to think, <laughs> didn't know what to do. Um, so she started looking on the internet about where she could, you know, if there was a place that could help me with this. And then she found out that the Jenner Clinic has um, also therapists that work there that are specialized in in gender. So she she thought, okay, well, there, you know, if anyone knows how to how to deal with this, it's going to be them. So she sent me there, thinking that they would know what they're doing, <laughs> but um, uh, spoiler alert, <laughs> they don't. <laughs> so. Um, I had my intake at that time, like the waiting lists right now are absolutely crazy. I think they're at this point almost three years or maybe even past three years. But at the time they were, they were much, much shorter. Um, and I, it was, I think it was three. I, I think it was, I'm not sure. Six months, three months, six months, something between that. Um, so by the time I I saw them was like late uh, 2015 it must have been so around the winter uh, that's when I had my intake and um, they were kind of general and my mother was there in the intake as well and then later one appointment as well and and my mother was very clear that she did not see this and she didn't think I was trans and she she also expressed her concerns that that. Um, it was related to other things like my sexuality and and the divorce uh, with my parents and and um, the my family situation and that I was bullied and that I was lonely and that I also had a bad relationship with my father because I had I, that's probably also important to to um, say to give more of a background. Um, but they never really listened to her. Um, I think they told her something like um, they tried to like comfort her. I'm not sure if that's the right yeah, term. Yeah, console her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, they would tell her that they worked very carefully and very. Um, they um, there was this this assessment and this long process that I would have to go through, and they would explore um, my past and all that. And uh, if there was something else going on that was, you know, other than me being trans, they would figure that out along the process. But then they diagnosed me after four or five appointments over the course of two months, which given that I had such a complex past was, is ridiculous, I think. And they considered themselves and were considered the world leaders. Yeah, so I initially I went to the gender clinic in another city, uh, the one closest to the. Uh, there were I think at that time there were two gender clinics, the Groningen and and Amsterdam, and I went to the one in Groningen. Um, but they did only the um, thera- like therapeutical um, part of of the transition, and after that they would have to. Um, sent me to the Amsterdam clinic for the medical part. So, because there were different phases during the transit, like the transition um, process. The first one was the, the 
I'm not sure how to translate it properly, but um, diagnostic mm -hmm. phase, mm -hmm. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so they would look for the diagnosis, uh, but that one for me was only five, four or five appointments. And then I got the diagnosis. And then they referred me to the Amsterdam clinic for um, the second uh, phase. And I'm not sure how to call that. I, I, but it basically is more of a preparation for transition. And the questioning is pretty much out of the out of the, what they do. They barely question and they barely um, explore anything. Do, do you remember, sorry, I, I want to get to the medical portion or the preparation portion, but I just, I want to ask you before we move forward, do you remember in the course of those four or five sessions during the diagnostic phase, do you remember any line of questioning or any exploration that you, in hindsight, think, well, they should have spent more time on that? Or like, there was a lot they missed, obviously, right? So, can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So the the initial phase was very they didn't really go into well they didn't go into depth at all. Um it was more kind of um they stayed kind of on the surface. They didn't really go into depth. Um and I do recall that they asked me stuff like, well, how do you know you're not gay? And then I just answered with stupid stereotypes and that, you know, could have, that really don't say anything. Um, and they just took, they, they just believed it. <laughs> I think, um, I think one of the things I told them was like, yeah, but when I see a gay man, I don't feel like that's me or I don't feel like it. It, I don't feel like gay men represent me or something where I don't identify with them, which is ridiculous because obviously if you have internalized homophobia, that's what you feel. You're not going to feel that. <laughs> so, um, but they, they just believe that. Um, but honestly, I don't remember too much about the details of, of like this initial process. So when I went to Amsterdam, I, I had to wait again for a couple of months and in the meantime, I had graduated from uni from high school, and I went to uni. Um, so I also moved to another city, and I was so happy that I left high school because I hated high school. And then I started the the appointments with the Jenner Clinic in Amsterdam, and uh, they basically copied, or like not copied, but like they took the diagnose diagnostics from from the Groninger Jenner Clinic. And my mother says, and I'm I'm not sure, I don't remember this exactly, but my mother says that they, they said that in Groningen they just do the diagnosis and, and in Amsterdam they're going to further question that diagnosis or further like see what is... No, wait, now that I'm talking about it, they also told me, yeah, I remember that. Uh, they told me at the last appointment I had with them that, yeah, you have the diagnosis now and now in Amsterdam, they're going to look if, if uh, what the best treatment for it is or what, uh, what to do about it and where it comes from or something like that. But then I went to Amsterdam and the, all they did was affirm and all they could, like the only treatment they ever talked about was uh, um, medical and never, they, they, they never talked to me about, you know, maybe you can fix your distress with, um, like therapy 
they never talked about that. It was it was really just um, preparing for the medical the medical stuff. And you you had difficulties with your father, and you had internalized homophobia, and they didn't discuss this. Very little. I'm. I think the especially the internalized homophobia part. They they didn't even they didn't even talk about that really. At least I don't remember they did. So it probably if even if they did, it probably didn't mean much. Um, because you know I've met you and well you know by Zoom how we all meet and you know some people you could kind of see quite quickly they seem gay you know just probably be shot for that but you you do. I just can't believe you went to a clinic and they didn't just think this guy is gay. Yeah, well, I suppose they, they look at like stereotypical things. So if as a man you're a bit effeminate, they're going to beat that as, as being trans. Yeah. Right. And actually the more, the more, according to, you know, that kind of way of being, the more quote gay you are, the more trans they believe you are. Right. Like, to them, that's yeah. proof of how super, super trans somebody is, I think. I know, yeah. I know. But some people are so okay. It's just, ah, how did this happen? <laughs> okay, so, so you get there and really you realize that, in fact, they are just preparing you for the medical transition part. Can you talk about some of your experiences with the medical staff there? Because I think you had some very... Profound and kind of disturbing experiences. Can, can you share some more about yeah. that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I didn't start medication initially. I think I was there for a year before I started. No, mm, yeah, one and a half year, I think, even before I started hormones. And the reason why it took so long was because you are not. I'm not sure how it is back now, like now, because um, I think they changed their protocols. But back then, when I was there, the protocol was that you have to go through this real life phase, basically. Um, and this real life phase basically means you have to um, live life as the preferred gender. So you have to wear clothes of the preferred gender and express yourself as the preferred gender and go by your new name and all that. And I, I didn't really do that um and that was something that we talked about a lot um because they were questioning uh, you know why aren't you doing this because it's it's needed and the reason why i didn't do it was because i was scared for the reaction of other people on the one hand but also because whenever and i literally told them this i told them uh, when I dress up as a in you know female clothes, I feel like a man in a dress, and that makes me feel even worse. So I'd rather just be a guy then. And when I think about that now, that's a very very obvious red flag. The words literally, I would rather just be a guy then. Um, but they they didn't think it was uh, important apparently. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us. Rhyme, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more.
And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show. So, sorry, I, I just want to make sure I understand. So there's this supposed standard of, like, for one year, the individual is supposed to live in the opposite gender role. And they knew that you weren't doing it. And they kept kind of asking you, please do it or encouraging you to do it. And your hesitation, I would imagine that would be an indicator of a red flag. But you're saying they just kept sticking with the same time course, even though you were not doing the the living in the other gender? Well, they tried to get me to do it. They wanted me. It was like they wanted me to do it. Mm or the therapist that I was seeing, but, but I had like, I had very little, I had very low self-esteem. I had very low confidence. Um, so I didn't do it. And also, like I said, like I, I, it made me feel more uncomfortable than just wearing guy clothes. Um, so, um, and we talked also about confidence and, and, um, self-acceptance also. Um, but never, I don't remember this, to be honest. I don't remember that we talked about this. But um, fast forwarding to last year when I was detransitioning and I went back because I wanted to hear from them why they didn't do certain things and why they did it so badly. Um, they said that we did talk about self-acceptance and then they, they basically said um, something like... Uh, they realized that I had very low self-esteem and they were questioning whether there would ever be a point where I would accept myself. And then I got really angry because I, I was just like, how can you give a teenager at that time I was 18 already, but still teenager. How can you give a teenager like hormones and, and sign them up for surgeries? If you think that self-acceptance is, is such a, you know, if you're worried whether they're ever going to accept themselves, you realize that self-acceptance and like confidence is such a big thing. How can you do that? That's, it's ridiculous. So there were you in your early 20s teaching them the basics of what they would have learned in their first class of psychology or psychiatry or? I mean, I tried to teach them that, but they didn't listen, but we'll get to that later, I'm sure. <laughs> um, so, um, but so because I didn't have the confidence to um, make the, the switch to like present as female, they, they, and like I told you, they wanted uh, me, they, it's almost like they wanted me to, to transition or like make the switch rather than really explore what was going on. Um, they even told me, they, they approved me for starting hormones, even though I had not done the real life phase. Um, and they said literally to me that, uh, the reason why they give it to me is because they hope that this is going to give me more self-esteem to make the switch, which is when I, th I mean, obviously at the time I was happy because that was the thing I wanted. But when I look at it right now, it, you know, in hindsight, now that I'm older, now that I'm an adult, I'm, I'm just thinking, how can you be this stupid? How can you be this incompetent? I'm sorry. Yeah. So they thought they could give you a little nudge 
towards transitioning by giving you the hormones. They literally called it a present. They they literally told me like, yeah, this is a little present from us. Oh my god. Oh my god. Yeah. And at this time I was late 18, so I was I mean legally I was an adult, but not like when you turn 18 you're instantly uh, an adult and not a child anymore. Yeah. And I know that you, you, you had quite a, a lot of surgical procedure. I think you did. Could you tell us how, how did the hormones impact and when did you move on to the surgical procedures? How did that all go? Mm-hmm. So, and this is also something that I, I'm quite, you know, angry about because at the beginning I talked to them, I only wanted hormones and um, vaginoplasty. And maybe depending on how much breast growth the hormones were going to give me, I wanted the breast implants or like a breast augmentation. I eventually opted out of breast augmentation because I found out like the complications with um, implants and like breasts, uh, how do you call it? Like um, breast implant illness or something of like women getting these really weird um symptoms after they got an augmentation so i i didn't do that eventually because i was scared for that um but i didn't want any other surgeries but then i went on hormones and i i went on them thinking they were going to change so many things also because that's what they told me they they told me because passing was very important to me and they realized that i i was um passing was you know looking back I think if they had asked me what um, would you do if you weren't able to pass, which they didn't, as far as I know, I probably would have said, at least if I was being honest, I would have said, um, if I'm not able to pass, then I don't see a point in doing all of this because passing was that important to me. I didn't want to be a trans woman. I wanted to be a woman and the trans woman was the closest I could get to it. So I just went for that, I suppose. But they kept telling me not to worry about that because I didn't look so masculine, and that thinking about it now was ridiculous because I'm I'm quite tall, my feet size is quite big, um, my hands aren't that big, but uh, my shoulders are broad, and I also in my face had like a very heavy brow bone, so there was no way that I was going to be passable um, from just hormones. Uh, but they, you know, they they kept telling me like, oh, you know, you're you don't look that masculine at all. You look quite feminine from yourself, which is just not true. So I'm not sure why they said that. I think they just want to be nice, but they don't realize that with that they are not really helping me. Another little present, you know, just like keep keep the fantasy alive. That's really yeah. I think that I think that um, they just. I don't think they like really want to hurt people. That's really not what I think. I think they just want to be nice and they think that this is this is, you know, making people feel better because people like hearing this. So it's it's so they think like, you know, that's probably good for them then, but you're not really helping people with that. You're just I had this delusion and they just sent me deeper into it. They just fed it. So because of that, I went on hormones thinking it was going to change everything, but obviously that was disappointing. In the beginning, it was, um, I liked the physical changes that it gave me because it got rid of my acne and it got rid of my body hair. 
Um, so initially, I was happy with the physical changes. Now I was an emotional wreck because the HRT, the, it was like a roller coaster of emotions. And it actually made me suicidal. Um, whereas before, I. I mean, I I thought about suicide, but it was just a thought. It would go away after an instant. Um, but when I went on hormones, it was like really thinking about it because I just felt very bad. And they would just tell me like, oh, yeah, but that's normal. That goes away. Eventually it resolves. Um, which, again, ridiculous. Um, and it is true, though, like eventually it did kind of stabilize and my emotions, they did get more stable, but it I never got not depressed. <laughs> I, I stayed depressed. And then also after a few months, I started gaining a ton of weight. And then I also felt shit about myself physically. And that weight gain, is that to do with estrogen or what? Yeah. Mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think definitely estrogen. Um, and um, I also started to notice that I didn't, you know, pass uh, as well as I had hoped for. So that's when I started to think like, oh, you know, I need to have a surgery for this. I, I, that's when I thought I need to have uh, facial feminization surgery. And I talked to them about that. And they didn't really question it. Uh, I, they did shortly tried to talk me out of it because they were again like oh but you don't look masculine you look very feminine like you don't need to do that but i i wasn't i mean i feel like you know in some some ways i felt like i was really stupid but i wasn't stupid in that regard i realized i wasn't passable so i just wanted to have the surgeries because i hoped that it was gonna make me more passable um so i didn't really listen to them but they never really questioned, you know, they, they only told me like, oh, you don't need it. And, and you know, why do you want this? But they never questioned it. Uh, they never um, looked into. So first I was very clear about not wanting it. And then I was very clear about wanting it. And they never questioned like what happened here. They never looked into that. It was just and that's basically uh, how they work. It's like if you have the diagnosis and you once you've started hormones, um you can just pick whatever procedure you want it's just uh they're not going to stop you it's just um you know even if they don't agree with it they are going to refer you um it's like a menu and you can just pick what you want basically it's ridiculous well at that point it's just cosmetic enhancement right so exactly. because i guess like according to their framework because you're on the hormones you're already transitioning to woman. Therefore, if you were a cis woman and she said, you know, I'm thinking of getting a nose job, nobody's going to try to stop her. Like nobody psychologically evaluates a woman who wants a nose okay. job. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's the thinking. Yeah. Even though I think they should. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Very big chance is body dysmorphia. And for me, it definitely was body dysmorphia. So the answer was not... Um, the answer was not getting the surgery. The answer was therapy. Because the needle kept moving. Like the standard of exactly. how, how to be happy just kept shifting. You weren't finding exactly. it. Yeah, the the, mile, the milestone keeps, keeps shifting, <laughs> keeps moving. So, um, so then I had it. They referred me 
and I first went. Oh God! <laughs> so I first went to um, Bart van der Ven in Antwerp for a consultation, and I was immediately. I kind of felt like, yeah, no, I do not want to be operated by him because he just gave me very creepy vibes. Because he proposed things to me that I mean, he was nice, but I remember when I he I sat in his office and he he asked me to sit on this chair and he was looking at my face and he literally took out um um uh not a measuring tape but like a measuring ruler yeah ruler um and he would like really measure my face and then he would say like oh this we can change by one centimeter and this by so many millimeters so i really felt like he wanted to make me like some sort of doll as like a standard product which i hated so i didn't go with him and he also proposed things to me that i i felt like uh weren't even safe i'm not a doctor i'm not a surgeon but i'm studying um you know anatomy some something related to anatomy so i know what the skull looks like (laughs) thank god um and Apart from like the brow bone, because my brow bone was very heavy, he he said that my forehead was kind of protruding, so he wanted to shave that back as well. But that's like the frontal bone. So with the brow bone, if you shave that back behind it, you have a like a, a cavity, the frontal cavity, the frontal sinus, and they basically just close that and they make it smooth. Um, but above that, there is no cavity, like directly. A, underneath that is is or like um is the brain but he wanted to also shave that down and he said like oh no it's it's very safe you know and then he he like i don't know he talked about uh how the bone is uh, um i'm gonna try to make it not too technical but how the bone is like shaped and how it works and all that so he said he could basically like make the frontal bone um thinner but i just thought to myself like do like is this do people do this? Is it done by other surgeons? Is this even safe? <laughs> so and then I looked for it online and I couldn't find any information about any procedure like this. So then I kind of thought, yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not doing this. So it seemed like I know you're when none of us are surgeons, but just I mean you can google anything these days. You can find something, a website on anything, but you're saying even with a Google search you couldn't find this procedure that he was suggesting or or saying is an option. No, but I think because I heard other I also talked to other people who we operated on. Some of them are detransitioned, some of them are not. Um and they a lot of people hate him. Uh, a lot of people who were operated by him, they really hate him because he. They say that he experimented on on them. He just tried these ridiculous new methods that um, are not like no one else does. Are not very. Are not really tested. Are not really safe. And he just does it on on his patients without permission. So so, thank God I didn't go to him. So I went looking for another one, and I heard there was one in in um, the clinic in Amsterdam uh, itself. So I went to that surgeon, uh, and that was uh, she was a woman, and she really seemed 
you know, at the first consultation, she seems really nice. And also I heard a lot. I, I, I remember I looked for the entire internet and I could not find one single negative review about her. Everyone was so, it was, she was so amazing and so great. And she had so much knowledge about this and whatever. So I went to her and with the consultation, she also seemed really nice. So, um, and she was really like selling me this, um, talks of like um she really could she couldn't make like very uh, a lot of promises because every face is different and every face needs a different approach and like uh she really has a a, a good um feeling for what is natural and what is looks good on every face and whatnot so so yeah that and i fell for it sadly so i had the surgery with her and then she um so initially, I was very clear about it. I did not want uh, anything done to my nose. I, my nose was very big. I I never had an issue with it. I mean, yeah, it was big, but there's tons of women who have big noses. So I, I women in my family, for example. So um, I didn't feel like that was something that really made me masculine. Um, but she she kept insisting on on doing something about it and. And then eventually she said something like, uh, oh, but it isn't possible otherwise. And I thought when she said that, I thought like, oh, it's not possible physically otherwise. So that's how she got me to sign the papers eventually. But I remember telling her that, you know, looks wise, I don't want much to change. I told her like, you know, change as, as, as little as possible because I don't want another nose. And I also talked about, I asked about like complications. For example, I also had a, an Adam's apple reduction. And I asked about my voice because I had done vocal training to have more of a feminine voice. And that to me was more important than having my Adam's apple shaven down. But she was like, yeah, no, Adam's apple reduction is a simple procedure and there's very little risk, so don't worry. So I bought it and, and I went for that as well. Um, and obviously the, the forehead recontouring, um, which I also had questions about, for example, if it would influence my eyesight and she said it didn't. So yeah, I had the surgery. And then after that, I noticed I, 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 I learned the hard way that I had a lot of complications. Um, and also I told her I didn't want a new nose, but she changed literally everything that she could about my nose. Like it was before it was really big. And now it was really small and it was even, it was the exact result that I told her I did not want. It looked very fake. It was very tiny. Nobody had a nose like that naturally. It was very clearly operated. And most importantly, it didn't function. I couldn't breathe properly. So I had to take a revision and I had a revision um, not too long ago. And it went well, so I can breathe again. So I'm very happy about that. But um I was very pissed towards her, at her. I'm still, I'm very pissed <laughs> at her, obviously. And I also noticed that my voice uh, had changed. My voice had gotten deeper, which obviously I did not want at the time, you know, given that I'm detransitioned now, it's not a big of an issue anymore, thankfully. But um, I still, I can't sing anymore because my upper vocal range is just gone. I, I When I try to reach it, there's just no sound coming out. And you weren't that bothered about 
you know, your Adam's apple, you had said it, it wasn't a big deal and you were yeah. bothered about your voice. I just want to reiterate, I know you've said it, but it, it feels egregious that actually your voice came out different. That whole story was shocking. Yeah, yeah. And they actually did look into what was causing it. And, and I went to another, she referred me to another doctor and he like used this small camera, which was also kind of, you know, small side story. But um, when I was there, he tried this camera and to look into my throat, to look into my vocal cords, what, how they were looking. And he wanted to go, he needed to go um, through my nose uh, to do that. And one nostril was made so tiny that like this camera, which is tiny, tiny, didn't even fit in. So he had to use the other one. Uh, so that's how tiny she made it. Um, so, um, and he kind of found out that it has probably something to do with uh, the, um, what's it called? Scarring tissue that was kind of deforming my larynx and that was kind of messing my um, vocal cords so, but it was fixable through surgery um, but still I was kind of I, I haven't done that surgery and I probably also never will because I don't think it's that necessary and I'm just not a fan of surgeries anymore and obviously after that experience I'm kind of I hope I never have to do a surgery ever again um, so I, I, I don't think I will ever do it but um, I'll just live with it. Uh, can I ask a timeline question? So in terms of the course of time in which all these procedures happened, you yeah. you get on hormones. How long after you start hormones did the first surgery happen? And then like, how long did all these surgeries take? So I was um, lucky that because I wanted vaginoplasty from the start and usually they approve you for it if you've been one year uh, on hormones. Um, I think it's one year. Not entirely sure about that though, but um, but because I had, you know, you have to go for um, um, hair removal in the genital area before you can have the um, vaginoplasty because otherwise you can get like hair on the inside of the new vagina and that's like something which obviously you don't want but it's also dangerous so um and my hair and my skin or like the laser uh wasn't very effective for me so i had to go for electrolysis and that was also not very effective for me so it took for me a long long time before i was for it, it the hair growth had been reduced sufficiently enough in order for me to get the vaginoplasty and that really, and also COVID, I mean, I hated the lockdown, but thank COVID because it did save me from getting vaginoplasty because uh, the hospital had to close down and, and they couldn't do the surgery. So it took longer for me because there was this moment where I decided to detransition and a month later or like one and a half months later, I was called that it was my turn for the vaginoplasty that they could schedule me. So I was, I really dodged the bullet there. Kind of six weeks after you decided to detransition, you were given this appointment. Yep. Oh yeah. my god. So uh, yeah, very lucky with that. So how how did you get to that point of deciding? So first, I'm going to answer your 
previous question. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. So um, the facial feminization surgery, I think I had it after two, yeah, two years of uh, no, yeah, two two years and a few months of um, hormones, and the vaginoplasty was never happened. Thank God. But like I said, after one year, you can take whatever surgery you want if you are eligible for it. Um, how did I get to the point to detransition? I noticed very early on that being, especially being on hormones and, and socially transitioning, um, living as a trans woman, it didn't really make me happy. It alleviated my distress about my body, I thought, but it didn't really make me happy because my quality of life was just awful. I was again very isolated, whereas before I okay. So before I started hormones and before I, I was kind of living this sort of androgynous presentation in university, I had quite a good life. I had a social life. I went out a lot. I traveled, whatever. The problem I had back then was that I had this tunnel vision of I need to transition and then I'm happy. That's the problem I had. And I didn't get out of that. And that is the thing I regret the most. But, and also, of course, I got older. But then I, you know, I transitioned. And uh, especially after I had the facial feminization surgery, because I had this mindset of I need to, turn, at first it was hormones and then I would be happy. And then that didn't turn out. And then I needed uh the facial feminization surgery and then i would be happy and then it didn't really turn out what i expected from it and then i was looking for other things like oh now it's my shoulders now it's my hips so now i need to do something about this and i was looking on the internet for procedures that can change that and then at a certain point it was just hitting me like what what am i even doing like how did i get to this point i remember you described to me you were you were looking at hips, you'd gone down the body and you were looking at hips and you that was the kind of, almost, that was the moment of clarity. Meaning like like surgery yeah. for the hips? Is that what you mean? Okay. Yeah, it was more like my uh, body shape, I suppose, because I had broad shoulders and narrow hips and I wanted more like more of the hourglass shape. So I was looking for surgeries that could do that. Um I, until eventually I kind of, you know, like I said, I, I was thinking to myself, what am I doing? As a guy, I never really paid that much attention to what I look like. I mean, I wasn't comfortable with what I look like, but it didn't consume my life. And at this point, it literally consumed my life. I couldn't go out in public without being worried how people will perceive me, how I look. It was something I was like... Whether I was passing or not, it was something I was always paying attention about. So I felt like whenever I was um, outside, I couldn't relax because I was always like watching out for this. And obviously, that is exhausting. So as soon as, and it started as soon as I went on hormones, because as soon as I went on hormones, I was just hyper focused on like uh, the changes. Uh, you know, when, when do I look like a woman? Uh, and I was really nitpicking everything, and I was hyper focused on what I looked like, um, and also when I went out on how people perceive me. So I just couldn't relax when I went out. So I started to isolate because whenever I got outside of the door and with 
was with people, I, I just felt exhausted. So I'd rather stay inside. So I started isolating and I lost a lot of friends again, which is sad because before, like I said, my life was pretty good. And it, I, you know, it sucks that I didn't realize this earlier, but um, so, yeah. And, and then when I was looking for the hips, it kind of, I started realizing this, like, as a guy, I never had this. As a guy in my life, I wasn't comfortable with what I looked like, but my life was just much easier and it was much better and I could relax much more. I was less tense. I was less anxious. Yeah. You also talked about like the kind of uh, the combination of extreme loneliness and being gay as like a risk factor that was identified. I'm not sure which studies you were referring to, but I'm just thinking about that because you're describing like you went from having a social life and being pretty okay in, in some areas. And then you were super isolated. So do you want to talk a little bit about that part? Yeah. So in high school, I was very isolated because I was very unhappy and I was gay and I, I tried to fight that as much as I could. Um, and that's what they were, this study that I that I told you about, it is um, Cohen Ketanis, I think it was 2004. It's a Dutch article. Um, but um, in the article, she talks about uh, and the Cohen Ketanis is the researcher at the Amsterdam Hospital who who also published uh, the article or the the publication with the Dutch Protocol. She she developed the Dutch Protocol, um, and back in two thousand four, she warned about these big issues surrounding medicalizing you know trans kids. Um, that out of the boys. Um, you know, underage boys that receive this this diagnosis of, of back then it was called gender identity disorder. Um, eighty percent of them turn out to be gay once they reach adulthood or one like into into young adulthood, into their their twenties, uh, and they desist from their their desire to to become a woman. And the um, one very big risk factor that at the Amsterdam clinic they found was that a lot of these boys in their childhood and in their teenage years, they were very lonely and they had troubles with relationship with their peers. And, and I was exactly that. I was isolated. I was gay. Um, so given that I was such a textbook example, which they, like they themselves weren't for 10 years prior or 11 years prior, and they did not know how, like they didn't manage to get me out. I think that's very worrying. Did you work directly with uh, Steensma and DeVries? I mean, I, no. I can imagine these are huge clinics with lots of clinicians. Yeah, so uh, no, I never saw either Steensma or DeVries. But you went back to confront the providers at the Dutch clinic where you were seen. Is that correct? Yes. Um, and that's um also a bit i'm trying to tell the story a bit chronologically <laughs> but uh what i wanted to say before with regards of like the study that we just talked about is that um when i said that in university before i i really transitioned 
Uh, I had like a fairly good life. I had already, I went out of high school, but I had already found this trans label and I had already lashed onto it. And I had already this mindset of I need to transition and then I'm happy. But at the time when I found this trans identity, I was very isolated and I was very unhappy. And I should have, once I reached the university, I should have, you know, let it go. But sadly, I, I that didn't happen because at the, the clinic I was seeing at the time, the therapist, they only affirmed me. So, and also I had already gotten the diagnosis. I think if they had been more clear about that to them, it was also difficult and they hadn't given me the diagnosis so quickly and that they were still exploring things, I might have desisted on my own. But because they gave me this this diagnosis so quickly, I, I felt like, okay, well, they're the professionals. So if they say that this is me, it must be right. So I, just like my mother, I placed a lot of um, trust in them, mm-hmm. which is not weird because right. they're, the, they're supposed right. to be the professionals, but they're not. They're, they're very incompetent and they don't know what they're doing at all. But I didn't realize that at the time. Anyway, so after I had the surgery, the facial feminization surgery, I realized it wasn't really what I expected and my life before was easier and I kind of started to miss not necessarily being a guy, but I started to miss the life that I used to have. And that's and also because um I was passable, like more passable as a woman. Uh, not entirely, but but people didn't stare at me anymore at the street. And that was what I wanted. So I had what I wanted, basically. And I still wasn't happy. <laughs> so I was, I kind of felt like, why did I do this if this didn't make me happy, you know? And so that was like the first kind of shines that I received from, from like regret, but I still try to convince myself, like, I don't regret it. I did this. I needed this. And this made me happier than I ever was before. And obviously I, that wasn't true, but I tried to convince myself of that because I did not want this to happen to me. I did not want to regret this. And then also stuff happened with my family again, which just brought up a lot of these emotions again, that I had all these years just put away that I had not, at also at the, the therapist with the gender clinic had not been explored at all. They just came back and it was like I was reliving the whole thing again. And that kind of gave me the insight of, um, so that's why I felt like this. So so that's why I wanted to be a woman. So the reason why I wanted to be a woman was because I felt lonely and I thought it was going to be easier. So that's where it came from. Or not necessarily why I wanted to be a woman, but why I hated being a guy and why I hated myself and that it actually had a lot more to do with self-hate but more than, you know, um, my gender. Um, So, but at that time I still hadn't decided to detransition and I was also still planning on doing the, the vaginoplasty. Don't ask me why. I guess it was just I was put on this track yeah. And it was, you know, getting off of that track was just an, a, a step too far still at that point. Mm-hmm. But I did think about it a lot. I thought I, I, I kept having this this idea of like, uh, if I had known what I knew now, I would not have done it. Which is hard because nobody knows what they know now in the past. I mean, this is like exactly. such a difficult place 
to to be it's such self-torture as well to think about that and yet how could you not think about it like okay keep going you know so um i don't know and and you know as the more that progressed and the more time that went by the more i kind of felt like this isn't it and the more i felt like i wish i had just hadn't done it and i wish i just was a boy like or like a guy i wish i just was normal i suppose i wish i could go back to this life where i had didn't have to worry about all these things and it was so much easier even though i you know physically speaking i didn't like my body and these kind of thoughts they kept occurring all the time for a few months and eventually I reached this point where I was like, okay, I need to figure this out first before I do any surgeries. So at least I, I had that figured out. And not very short after that, <laughs> I think maybe two, three weeks after that, I decided because I was thinking about, about like, I wish I hadn't done it for so long. Um. I just decided eventually now I have to do it. Now I just have to go back. Now I just have to stop this. Uh, I just have to do it now. And that's when I kind of decided, okay, I'm going to quit hormones. I'm not going to do the surgery. I'm going to change back. This is it. And it felt initially like a huge relief because I just felt like this burden <laughs> it just got lifted off me cuz i felt that i could just go back living a simpler life basically and all these worries that i had about passing and constantly looking at other people and constantly comparing myself to other people and not feeling feminine enough and whatever i could just like put all that in the garbage bin and it felt so like such a relief, basically. Um, but obviously, as more time progressed, I started to realize what I had actually done, because I also had had the surgery, and it, you know, so it 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 it, it became a very hard period. And I also told my um, gender therapist, who had um, supervised me for all this time throughout my whole transition and I eventually I had an, uh, an appointment with her and it was over the phone because it was during COVID and I I told her that you know things had been going on and whatever and how I've been feeling lately and I just told her I um, I think I literally told her I don't think I'm trans after all and she was shocked <laughs> she was really surprised um, and I think she also felt very, very guilty that she didn't uh, stop me. But um, I don't know. I I've, At that time when I told her I didn't feel very, I still was, uh, even though I had decided to detransition, I didn't feel any regret of, of doing this. I still tried to convince myself that, no, I needed this and this. I don't regret anything, which is ridiculous. But I guess it was just trying to protect me from... I tried to protect myself from, from this feeling of regret because I did not want to feel that at all. 
but uh, obviously that didn't last very long because eventually it kicked in anyway. Um, and once it kicked in, it was very difficult. Also, given that the surgeon, I think if I had the facial feminization surgery and she actually did what I wanted, what I talked about with her, it would not have been such a big issue. But because she did these changes and I had these complications, it became a lot more difficult. So they, like the Jenner Clinic, eventually. Um, I still continue to see them. Um, and from them also came the question if they could continue to see me because they thought they could learn a lot from me because they said that detransition doesn't happen a lot. Um, and I was like, yeah, sure. Because at that time I didn't really feel, like I said, I was trying to protect myself from regret. So I wasn't necessarily angry at them. But the more time progressed, and as soon as this regret kicked in, it was very difficult. And then it was, and and I kind of got very angry at them. But I hadn't found another therapist that could help me. So I continued to see them because I felt like it, you know, even though I had no no faith in in them anymore, it was better to see to see someone rather than no one. But especially in the last uh eventually i found another therapist and i continued to see her but because they had this question because they said they could learn a lot from me i i still continue to see them but like i said the more time progressed the more angry i got and the more i thought about what actually happened and what they did and rather what they didn't do what what sort of age were you at this point um 22 so I I had been on hormones from eighteen to twenty two, so um, almost four years, three three years and like something months, almost four years. I bet that was a weird experience to like for for the rage to start appropriately coming to consciousness and the realization of what happened, yeah. and at the same time trying to help them learn from you. Like I, I, that seems like a very bizarre place to be. You're trying to figure out what the hell just happened to yourself and you're still in contact with the clinicians. Can you talk a little bit about that? That that seems very hard. Yeah. Um like I said, the the when I just like, you know, the regret didn't kick in immediately and the decision to detransition also didn't kick in immediately. It was a very slow process that took almost a year um before it had really kind of I don't know, happened. And even still, I feel like it's still going on, although the, the, the biggest part is, is um, definitely done. But, and I guess I can kind of compare it to de-radicalizing because I was so into this trans ideology almost, cult almost, honestly, even though I wasn't really a big part of... of trans social groups there was this big belief in like I have gender dysphoria and this is the only solution and trans women are real women and all this like beliefs that if I think about it now it makes no absolute it just makes no sense to me now I cannot imagine that I ever believed in it and that I was so deep into it 
I just I cannot imagine that, but I was. Uh, so that's why I feel like it's really kind of de-radicalizing, which I found very shocking. And it, at a certain point, it kind of hit me. I, I was like, especially because I, I started looking for answers again on the internet, which is, uh, you know, obviously now I was an adult, so I knew a bit better how to do, how to go go about it. But um, and I started looking more like because I had I was in university at this point for certain years, and I kind of figured like, okay, I'm not a psychologist. I don't even study anything related to psychology at all. But I know how to read scientific papers, so I'm just going to make an attempt. And I was like looking for these these academic papers about the psychology of 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 being trans and medicalization of trans. And that's when I found also the study which says that eighty percent was was um, gay of minors of uh, male minors. And that's when I kind of had this this feeling like, okay, now I, I kind of know how it's really like. It kind of hit me. And I started having all these questions related to my transition and, and how I was treated. And, I, and that's why I went back eventually. Uh, or like, um, I, I asked them if I can have a... a, a the one that I was still seeing because she said that she could learn from me. I asked if she, I can have an appointment with her, a research researcher from the hospital or with someone who has knowledge of what is going on or is in charge of what is going on. Um, and I'm not sure who I, honestly, I'm not sure who I, I talked to eventually, but I think she was kind of the um, team, like the leader of the team or the boss of the team or manager of the, t- of the, team of psychologists that they had and I forgot what her name was and I had all these questions about all these things and it was like I I had to it was like talking to a wall they did not listen to me at all and I tried because I, I had these things from all these like studies and papers and I was asking them about it and they said yeah because I, I was still thinking, you know, I'm not a psychologist, so maybe I didn't read them right. So I, I asked them this and, you know, basically um, making a short summary of the article. And it seemed like I had, I understand it quite well. And then I asked these questions, like trying to be critical. And then it just gave me like such bullshit answers. Also, when I related it to my own transition. So for example, um, and now I have to think, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sorry, it's a lot. We had it while you're thinking. We had a similar experience, I think. Of okay, <laughs> so um, God, what is the question that I think the one that I asked them um, was re- related to the detransition rate, uh, and I tried to to make them realize that they don't, even though there's these studies that that say that the detransition rate is very low, they're not very reliable, and it's very difficult to find the transitioners in the first place because the they the study that they uh it, it's conducted by them from their population um but the transitioners tend to not want any contact with them anymore i certainly don't want any contact with them anymore after i you know this last final uh, appointment that i had with them um 
So, and they also acknowledged that, like the researchers themselves acknowledged that in this study, they said um, that the detransition or regret rate was very uh, low, it was like one point something percent or something. Um, but uh, we lost contact with uh, like 30% of the patient population. So it might be as high as 30%, you don't know. You know, so it's it's very likely much higher, and they acknowledged that. And then I I kind of made the suggestion, like, don't you need to be very careful if you don't know what the actual percentage is? And they said, yeah, yeah, but we are very careful and blah, blah, blah. And then I tried to get into that, um, especially related to my, my transition. Um, and I asked them uh, about my mother because my mother had warned them for basically the exact she was right all along. The thing that she warned for was turned out to be the truth, but they didn't really um, listen to her and they didn't take her serious at all. Um, and then they are, their answer was basically, yeah, but some, some parents are transphobic and some parents, they have issue with, with their child transitioning. But, and I, and, and this was the thing that I tried to make them clear a lot of times, but they just, it seemed like just, it seemed to just go past them. It seemed to not make any impact on them. They assume a lot of things. They see that certain things are the case for some patients. And because of that, they think it's the case every time they encounter this. So they don't, they, they don't look, they're not exploring. They don't do research. They just assume, but yeah, it, whenever I tried to make them see that they just didn't, it didn't make any impact. And also what I told you about like the self-esteem that they realized that self-esteem was so important for me and they still allowed me to, to start hormones, even though they themselves were worried whether I would even reach a, ever reach a point that I would accept myself. Yeah, can you can you flush that out a little bit? I think we talked about that maybe before we had started recording. You discovered after the fact that they had actually flagged your lack of self-esteem even early on in the process. Yeah. So, and this has a lot to do with the passing. So passing was very important to me. I realized that in hindsight, at the time, not, not necessarily... And it's very weird because I, I, I had these, and I think also that's what therapists are for. You have these behaviors and these thought patterns and therapists are there to make you aware of it, but they didn't make me aware of it at all. The, I got aware of them because I grew up and got older. But uh, so looking back at that time already, I realized passing for me was very important. And I started to wonder why did you never question that? Why did you never like you they never told me and i understand you're not going to tell one of your patients you're never going to pass because that's just going to piss them off but you can keep it vague like and i literally told them the exact same thing to them uh, you can just say like you know maybe because passing is so important for you maybe did you ever think that uh what will you do if that's not possible because hormones are not the one, like some sort of wonder pill that is going to fix everything. And for some people, they change a lot and other people, they change not a lot. So even if you don't look very masculine, it's not a guarantee that hormones are going to make you passable. You, you said you were, you were tall. Are you like six foot or are you 5'10 or 6'2? Or... Yeah, I, I'm taller, but I'm not like that 
I, I'm not two meters or something. It's not like I was, I could be just a tall woman, you know? Okay. Um, but still, I was kind of self-conscious about my height. <laughs> anyway, from that conversation about passing, we went about the, to, to the conversation about um, self-esteem. And I'm not exactly sure how, how we made that switch, how that went. But um, I, I asked them about it. Why did you... Because the reason why I didn't do the real life phase was because I was afraid for other people's reactions and I had very low self-esteem. So why didn't you try to treat that before? Why didn't you talk about that? Because I don't remember anything that you that you really um, questioned about that. And that's when they said, oh, but we actually talked about it a lot. And then I, I was asking them, like, oh, really? Then what did we say? And and then they got, like, the old reports from back then, from the the, the archive or on the computer and um then they said that uh yeah we talked about this a lot and i was actually worried um that self-esteem was uh, like such an issue and whether you were actually going to reach a point where you would ever accept yourself and when they said that i got so angry <laughs> i was thinking and i was telling this to them how can you let a teenager who with with self-esteem issues how can you let them start hormones and surgeries when you are yourself doubting if there's ever going to be a point where they are going to accept themselves like that's stupid why would you ever do that and then they had this bullshit excuse of um but uh, that trans people usually have low self-esteem because of dysphoria and whatnot and it's just it's ridiculous and again i try to tell them yeah but you're assuming that you're not looking into that you're assuming my 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 um self-esteem issues are because i'm trans you never and i try to tell them this as well they assume every side issue that they encounter is a direct result of of dysphoria rather than the opposite they don't look into whether dysphoria is a symptom of other stuff going on and they say that they they did but i know they don't and also with the affirming, I try to make them realize that this this affirming that they do all the time, it's very kind of like toxic and dangerous because I came there with these beliefs that, you know, my, my desire to transition was what it really came down to was having these feelings that I, there was so much wrong with me and I needed to fix this. And by affirming my you know trans identity and by affirming this this idea that i need to transition they automatically affirm this belief that there is stuff wrong with me and that i need to fix something and i tried to make them realize that and all they could say to me was yeah but you should not have seen it like that and i told them i know i should not have seen it like that but i'm a teenager and i have mental issues so of course that's what you know i realize you're not you don't intend to do that, but you are doing that. But they just didn't realize that. And, uh, God, what else? There were so many things. I, I stopped, after this appointment, I stopped seeing them because I got so frustrated because, like I said, it was talking to a wall. So you, you were trying to, they said, we want to learn from detransition. You, you explained to them where they went wrong. And it sounds like they didn't have the, mental depth which frankly resonates with me from our own experiences that there was a lack of emotional depth or understanding of what it is to be human yes made it almost impossible for them to understand 
your points. Yeah, the, the superficiality. Everything that you say is taken at face value. Nobody thinks there's a deeper story behind the story. This child might be overcompensating. There's a deep unconscious process the kid's not aware of right now. There's no belief in that. Everything is whatever you say. You know, they interviewed you. They said, how do you know you're not gay? Well, I don't identify with gay. Check the box, moving on. And I I don't think they mean badly, but they don't have the depth. I mean, it sounds arrogant, but they're not that... They're not that deep. They're just not that deep. It reminds me of that phrase, deep down, you're quite shallow. (laughs) And (laughs) there's a... Yeah... And there's, it, it's almost like I'm thinking about the gender affirmative approach and I'm thinking, is it that shallow and superficial minds are very attracted to it? That it's, it's a simplistic way of approaching the human psyche that is actually very satisfying because mm-hmm. it makes it very easy to tick the boxes. You yeah. are what you say you are today, forever. And off we go. And it, it must, I can see why somebody would cling on to that because it's like we have the solution to life. Well, I have my ideas about this because I actually, um, I was looking for another therapist uh, because I had lost faith in them. This was like um, when I was still like an emotional wreck, way bef- like a few months before I had this, this final appointment with them. And I started looking for therapists that have some experience with gender, but are critical and don't affirm necessarily. So I saw this, oh, something I forgot to tell. So something that also played a big role in my desire to transition eventually was uh, seeing a documentary that had actually been released a few years prior in 2018 about... uh, a man who was older, who had regretted his transition and uh, who also was like only affirmed by therapists, even though his, his actual problem was, um, uh, uh, what's it called? Borderline personality disorder and um, PTSD. Because for months, I, I did realize this didn't make me happy and I kind of wish I hadn't done it, but I still had this feeling like, but they diagnosed me. and. They, you know, they, they, they said that this was what I should do. And they said that I was trans. So what else is it, you know, what, it, and I was afraid that if I was going to go back, it would just get worse. And then I saw that documentary and then I kind of realized, oh, like, oh, so, cause I had heard about mis- malpractices of therapists in America, but not about the Netherlands. I thought like, oh, but here they do it. Um, the right way yeah exactly and then i saw this documentary and then i realized oh shit it's happening here as well and then it didn't take a long time before i realized this was a mistake this is not what i should have done at all or after all um so that was also an important thing in my my decision to detransition and that happens i think a few weeks before i eventually made the decision now i have to go back uh, but anyway, so um, in this documentary, there was uh, a woman who was interviewed because she used to work at the Amsterdam clinic and she was critical and she didn't affirm and, and she, um, but she eventually resigned because uh 
patients were complaining about her because she was, you know, one of the difficult ones. So so people didn't like, patients didn't like her. Meaning she was kind of challenging them or asking them to think about yeah. these important things. Okay. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Keep going. So, um, and in the documentary, she was telling about this and eventually she said she, she resigned because she could not... Um, she didn't agree with the protocol that they were following and the, the policy that they were following. So she, she resigned eventually. And I reached out to her and she helped me with the whole thing. But um, so I think that the critical ones, um, there are plenty of critical therapists that, that, that would be interested in this topic, but they, they just either don't get involved or they or they resign because they don't agree with this policy of affirming and, and because it has also become so politicized. And I think the politicization of, of um, whole gender care is one of the major issues because if you don't affirm, you're a bigot. And if you don't affirm, then you're, this is conversion therapy and you're converting trans people into cis people. And, you know, it's become, it's become such a politicized ideological um stronghold and i think that's the main issue so so people who don't affirm and people who are critical they they get filtered out they either resign or they don't get hired or they are reported or you know etc I, I i know we're probably going to be approaching the end of our conversation i want to ask a question that i, I i'm aware we didn't get to when you started all this medical intervention, had you ever had any sexual relationships in real life with boys or, or young men? No, never. Was that explored at all? Was that raised no. as a concern? I think they asked me once, and I told them I'd rather wait before pursuing any sexual relationship after I had vaginoplasty because I didn't want it. I didn't want to have gay sex, basically. And again, they just took it. <laughs> they didn't challenge that. We better uh, close it up. It's been a, it's been an extraordinary conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I still have a lot to tell, though. <laughs> what What do you want the listeners to understand? That if you are not from the Netherlands and you believe that here things are all fine and they are, you know, we are supposedly doing the right, uh, it, the things the right way. We are not, definitely not. And I think, um, and it's already starting here also, um, that, you know, these scandals about how, how lax, these therapists have been treating especially young people and mentally ill people it it's it's uh it, it it's going public more it's being talked about more and also transitioning is not always the answer for dysphoria i think dysphoria is very complex and can have a lot of causes and a lot of you know in for example in my case i've always had some some form of dysphoria if you want to call it like that. Um, but I never, like transitioning was never going to be the answer. And the reason it got 
so severe. My dysphoria was never that that difficult, but it became very difficult because of so many other things that were surrounding it. Um, and I think before medical transition is being discussed, first, you know, look into therapy, like psychology, if you can alleviate the distress with, with that. I think that is very important. And I'm thinking there was one thing I wanted to tell about this final appointment that I had with them, something that I also wanted to let them make them see, but I cannot think about it right now. Um, was about the... Oh, yeah, it was about... I Because at this point, I still... The way I see it now is that this for is complex and, and transition is not always the answer. But back then, I still had this idea that uh, you're either tr really trans or you're not. Um, but there can be a lot of reasons why someone would feel discomfort about their, their natal sex. Um, and I, I tried to make them see that they didn't really investigate that um, very, you know, that not everyone that comes to them with distress about their sex necessarily is trans or, or transitioning is the best option and they should question it more. And I think I literally asked them, um, for me, when I came there, sex was my, my sex, my gender was such an obsession and looking back, it was not healthy at all. It was obsessive. And what I asked them, why didn't you try to challenge that? Because a normal, you know, quote unquote, like normal person does not think about their gender that much. They just are. It's kind of how I am right now as well. I'm a man because that's what I'm born as. But that's, you know, that's it. And then they said something like, uh, yeah, but um, they found that difficult to do because the people who enter their clinic are exactly the people to whom it is so important. So if they were going to say, like, it's not such a big deal, then that would be offensive or something. I don't know. And I, I wanted to make them see that they need to be much more careful because the, the, they can really fuck people's life with this they can really ruin people's life with, lives with this but then they said like yeah but some people can get really happy from it and you know we don't want to um withhold uh, these people their chances of being happy so you know i don't think they even added anything after that so basically what they're saying is we just give people the benefit of the doubt because we don't want to we don't want to stand in the way for their happiness even though it can possibly fuck them up. <laughs> what they also told me a lot of times was, and they didn't say this, this in these exact words, but what it came down to was, yeah, you wanted it. As if it was my fault. I almost feel like, it, conceptually, the idea that there's a trans person that we have to defer to their desires and their obsessions is incompatible with a real therapeutic process where you give a human being a chance to explore why they feel the way they feel. It's like those two things feel incompatible. And I think they were operating from the assumption that you're a trans person and that means something specific and we have to help you be yourself. That's the whole yeah. philosophy, it seems like to me. 
Exactly. I think your story and also your your observations about like what the clinic missed and trying to confront them on it. I think that is going to be mind blowing for a lot of listeners who, like you said, think, oh, well, the Dutch are careful. They all have childhood dysphoria. They early, you know, had these signs very early. And people think that that safeguards everyone from making errors. But I think your story is really powerful in that way. Yeah, I, I hope so. How are you doing now? I mean, I know we have to go, but just are you, I know you, detransition is a very complicated and long journey in and of itself, but how are you doing now? Um, it's, it goes up and down, but it's definitely improving. If I look back at where I was last year, when, you know, the whole detransition was all still fresh and new, I mean, still is because a year is nothing, but it's been uh, there's been a lot of progress um so i'm i'm glad with that but i'm it is difficult and it's not going to be you know it's it's something i'm going to have to carry with me for the rest of my life basically it it did it did leave a mark on me and i i'm not sure if i'm ever going to get over it completely which is painful also because of you know not not just physically because obviously, like the hormones and the surgery, um, they have had a physical um, mark, but also like psychologically, mentally, emotionally. Um, oh God, yeah, it was. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have so much to say. But with the uh, endocrinologist, it was also what I also found kind of mind blowing was that they told me that the medicine they would give me was completely safe and reversible. And it's, um, God, what is this called? It's a triptolurin or something. It's um, uh, decapetil, um, which is used to um, treat prostate cancer, which they didn't tell me, but I found out later. And uh, when I detransitioned, I, you know, it gave me, especially in like genital area, a lot of um, dysfunction and um, atrophy. And I was worried about that never coming back. And I questioned them on it and they said like, yeah, no, it should all go back. And then I asked them, how do you know? Are there any studies on this? And they told me in theory, it should all go back. But if you say in theory, it should go back in medicine, it basically means you know nothing. Yeah. Same with puberty blockers. That that's what they say. In theory, puberty will resume. Exactly. So the um, tripto, like the cotritolurine, decapeptil stuff that they gave me is the same medicine that they use for puberty blockers in in teenagers and children. Even though I I got cross sex hormones with it as well. So technically, in my case, it wasn't puberty blockers, but it's the same stuff. And um, there are studies on it in like um for the treatment of cancer and if you look at the the stuff like um articles that talk about this stuff being used for cancer patients they will talk about complications and they will talk about like um side effects some of which are permanent especially with for like um for infertility um 
penile shrinkage, like atrophy. Um, God, what is it called? Um, erectile dysfunction, all that stuff. And those can be permanent even after only a few months. And I've been on it for years. And and even when I asked them about it, they were not aware of this at all. Even though if you go probably to a, a clinic for cancer and you ask them about it, they probably know it. But the gender clinic doesn't. So why? Like, what are they missing? That's it's 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 unbelievably enraging how flip and casual they are about the way they they suggest and prescribe and determine yeah. and assess and diagnose and and um, you know obviously we Stella and I this is our work we know all this stuff very well but it's just so unbelievable to hear like an actual account from beginning to end of how this looks in a person's life and I know Teresios you you have a lot to say and you're also yourself in a process of making sense of all this we would love to maybe have you come back maybe several months down the line see how things are going with you if you'd be interested to come back I imagine you'll have a lot of reflections and things to say I could tell you have a lot of value to offer so would you be willing to come back on and maybe continue the conversation? Uh, yes, of course. I would love to. Okay. Thank you. It was yeah. absolutely very moving and sad, but very important story. A very, yeah. very important story, I think, I told. Yeah, thank you so much for telling us. Yeah, thank you for uh, listening and thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.